0: Now that's page 1115 in the Pew Bible, if you have one of those. So that's Acts 20, verse 13 through 38. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When, we, when he met us at Asos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul set Sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance. And have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought, he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Hear the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning, church. Thank you, Jody, for reading that important passage from Acts chapter 20. I did think we might have the whole chapter because the first. 12 verse verses in Acts 20 there's a enigmatic little story an amusing story uh, about the preacher going on and on and on and the church falling asleep now that would never happen in Hope Church I know you're a very attentive church uh, but I did preach in uh, my previous church that will remain uh, unnamed and there were one or two mature worshipers in that congregation that were known for nodding off during the sermon And one in particular would do it quite regularly. I won't name her. Uh, She would do it quite regularly. And then she would come up to me without fail at the end of the service. She was such a grace-filled woman. She'd come up to to me at the end of the service and she'd say, a lovely sermon, Stu. That was a lovely sermon. And I knew that Mary had gone to sleep before halfway through the sermon every Sunday without fail. Uh, so I'm going to pray that we're going to be attentive and we've heard uh, that the children are going to be asking you what you learned from the sermon. So let's pause for prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you this morning that we can gather in your name and to meet with you and to hear from you. We thank you from this word, for this word that's just been read to us. And we pray now that your Holy Spirit will take that word and apply it to our hearts, to our minds that you give us the grace to understand and to respond to what it is that you're saying to us, not just individually, but as a church. Lord, we pray that you would humble our proud hearts, that you would strengthen our timid hearts, that you would heal our broken hearts, that we might know Jesus and in his name and for his glory, we pray. Amen. Well, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Acts 20. And we find here Paul journeying on in his missionary journey and we find him in Troas at the beginning of the chapter which is a little town in northwestern modern-day Turkey, not that far from modern-day Istanbul and he's there preaching the words, he breaks bread and there's a sense of urgency in what Paul is doing because he's heading towards Jerusalem, Luke records for us. He wants to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost and so he also, there's a sense of Poignancy, there's real emotion uh, with the people because he advises this is going to be the last time that he sees them. And so there's a real emotion in what he's saying, and he's giving them these final instructions before he heads to Jerusalem. But he takes the opportunity, he wants to share all that he can, and so he preaches for quite a long time. And if you look at verse 9, Luke records in his wonderful language that Paul was preaching seated in the window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on when he was sound asleep he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead now Paul was completely unfazed about this remember that Luke is writing the story he was obviously a little bit concerned about how long the preacher was going on Going on and on. He preached till midnight. And I don't know what you're up to today. I've got a bit of time on my hands. But just be careful for you people sitting up at the balcony. This young man, Eutychus, he was on the third floor of the story. And he falls asleep and he falls down dead. Three stories. Paul is completely unfazed. He says, don't worry, don't worry. He goes down, wraps his arms around him, raises him back to life. And the young man is Resurrected, He's alive. It's an incredible resurrection story in the book of Acts. Paul, not to, be, not to miss an opportunity, he says, right, let's carry on. He goes back upstairs. They break bread again. And he preaches. How long does he preach for? He preaches on till daybreak. He preaches for another five or six hours. So just be thankful that this is a 30-minute message, team. Well, the next day, after a bit of raising of the dead. The whole team sets south. They go down the coast and some of them are walking. Paul is walking to the next stop. Some of them are on the boat sailing down. And Paul is in something of a hurry, as they say. He's wanting to get to Jerusalem. So he goes past. He sails past Ephesus, which was probably the main church in that region at that time. He sails past them and he goes to the little town called Militos where Paul summons the elders from the church of Ephesus to join him, which they do. Picking up in verse 18. When they arrive, that's the elders, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you but have taught you publicly from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that at every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. As I said, this meeting becomes so emotional because in the next verse, Paul articulates clearly that this will be the last time that they're going to see each other. And so there are tears wept as they say farewell at the end of the chapter. Paul has a prompting from the Holy Spirit that his life is in danger, that prison and hardship awaits. So he takes this opportunity to give these elders some final instructions. These are the last things that he wants to say to the church at Ephesus, in particular to their elders. So who are these elders that he is engaging with? In the space of a few verses, Paul uses three distinct titles for leaders of God's church who have been appointed by the Holy Spirit to oversee the church at Ephesus. In verse 17, they are described as elders or presbyters. And this is a phrase that Paul is borrowing directly from the Jewish synagogue. In verse 28, he describes them as overseers, a title that comes to be known as bishops. And then also in verse 28, they are described as shepherds or pastors relating to the function that these leaders of God's church are going to have. The three titles refer to the same people, the leaders of the church. They're leading the church in Ephesus and we note that there are a number of these presbyter bishops called to shepherd the flock of church of the church of God. Paul firstly gives an account of his own ministry among them, not hesitating to preach anything which would be helpful to them, teaching them publicly from house to house, declaring to Jews and Greeks the need to turn to God and repentance and believe in our Lord Jesus. In other words, Paul is preaching exactly the same message that the Lord Jesus preached, to repent and believe the good news. After encouraging them in their ministry, which we're going to look at in a moment, he describes how he was not a burden financially on them, but rather he worked hard and generously for the sake of the flock. Look at verse 33. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive I'm reminded of the words of Saint Michael Jones the great all black when he was asked why are you such a fearsome tackler he said well in the words of the Lord it's better to give than to receive (laughs) which they clearly needed last night So what were Paul's instructions to these elder pastors? Well, look at verse 28 and 29. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock to which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. So it's a real warning, isn't it? It's a warning to these elders. Firstly, what are they called to do? They need to keep watch on themselves. Keep watch on themselves. Temptations and pastoral leadership abound. Financial impropriety, sexual infidelity, and perhaps the greatest threat for pastoral leaders is the temptation of pride, which says, look at me, haven't I done such a good job? Paul is warning these elders, keep watch of yourself. Keep watch of yourself. It's shocking to observe in recent times the number of senior church leaders who have stumbled. And churches, I pray for you. Can I ask you to be praying for your leaders of your church? As I say, temptations abound. But the warning here that Paul gives to his leaders is firstly, keep watch of yourself. Keep watch of yourself. Then he says, keep watch of the flock. Keep watch of the flock that you have been put in charge of. Overseers, be shepherds of the flock. A metaphor that is dear to my heart as an old shepherd. And that's why Mary and I were watching the great movie, the agricultural movie called Rams on Saturday night. It wasn't Mary's choice, but it was my choice. What is a shepherd called to do? A shepherd is firstly called to feed and water the flock. To bring the flock to the good pastures, to ensure that they are fed and can be fed, to ensure that the water is flowing for them, that they can be fed and watered, that they can be tended, that they can be protected. And so you need to be brought to the pastures, the good pastures, so that not only can you be fed, but you can feed yourselves, you can open the word of scriptures, you can know how to handle the word of the scriptures rightly yourselves feeding and watering last week zishan reminded us of the centrality of the holy spirit the ministry of the holy spirit in our midst this is the metaphor that jesus uses of the watering the wells feeding and watering also shepherds tend their flock every farmer knows that sheep can get sick They can get a bit unwell, so they might need drenching, they might need dagging and crutching. We won't push that metaphor too far because that would be unhelpful. Feeding, watering, tending, and then significantly, Paul says, protecting the flock. Protect the flock. And he specifically says you're protecting them against the wolves that will come in, and the wolves that he describes are the false teachers that will distort the word of truth, And significantly, he names that some of those wolves will be raised up from within. It's a real warning that Paul is giving to the church at Ephesus. It's a warning that the church needs to hear today. Does it matter what we teach about salvation? Does it matter what we teach about the gospel, about marriage, about sexuality, about work, about character of God? You bet it does. Be on your guard, Paul says. Be on your guards. You know, having ministered in an Anglican context for over 25 years, I'm not easily shocked. But last month, I was shocked. I saw a church service that was uh, broadcast from an American church. And the assistant minister was dressed up as a drag queen. And they were celebrating, and, and this assistant minister as a drag queen was preaching and celebrating a coming out Sunday. And as I say, I'm not often shocked, but this did shock me. And just to say, Zeeshan, if you show up in drag queen, your curacy's over, right? <laughs> just saying. Now we can laugh about this, but God doesn't laugh about it. And that's why Paul is saying, keep watch over the flock. Keep watch over yourselves. He's deadly serious about this. And being compelled by the Holy Spirit and warned of imprisonment and hardship ahead, Paul declares that he is unconcerned about his own life. Verse 24 My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task. To finish the race and complete the task. And I want to ask you the question Are you a finisher of the task that God has given to you? Paul was unconcerned about his life. All that he wanted to do was to finish the race and complete the task are you a finisher of the task that God has given to you now I don't know about you but I'm a pretty good starter of things and a few of my projects don't always get finished about 22 years ago Mary asked me she said you know Stu there's one thing that I'd love for you to make for me it will be this lovely macrocarpa coffee table and I said Mary I'm your man I've done woodwork till the third form. I am your man. Leave it with me. And so the very next day, I went down to the Drury Sawmill and uh, I got these lovely six by twos of macrocarpa dressed timber. You know how macrocarpa smells when it's just been dressed? It was incredible. I brought it home. I had some three by threes for the, for the legs. And I got home the very next day. I brought out my third form woodworking skills and I did this lovely dovetail joints. And I thought, we're underway. Leave it with me, Mary. You know, yesterday I went in to get the mower out to mow the lawns. And do you know what's sitting on the shelf in the garage? All those strips of timber. That's right. Unfinished tasks. Now, Paul's not worried about coffee tables. But he is worried about the task that God has given to you. Finish the task. Complete the race. The question you need to know is, what is the task that God has given to you? What is the task that God has given to you? What was Paul's task? We'll look at verse 24. Verse 24, he says, My only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. That was Paul's task, to testify to the good news of God's grace. He goes on to say, to testify the good news of God's grace, to preach the kingdom, and to preach the whole will of God's. What is your God-ordained task, I ask again? Paul had many things and was many things. He was a church planter. He was a miracle worker who raised the dead, especially those sleeping during sermons. But his primary calling was to preach the good news of God's kingdom. And he describes that in three different ways. And we're going to explore that right now. Firstly, to testify to the good news of God's grace. What does it mean to testify to the good news of God's grace? On Thursday night, we kicked off a life group at our place and we looked at John's Gospel, chapter 1, where it's described as Jesus being full of grace and truth. And I just described grace... In these following ways, the unreserved favor of God, the unreserved favor of God. So, Paul's calling from God that he was going to complete, that he was not going to be swayed from, was testifying to the good news of God's unreserved favor. And that's what he said about doing. Do you realize that in Christ, God's favor, God's blessing, God's mercy, God's goodness, is poured into our hearts, that God is for you. That's the nature of God's grace. That's what Paul went about testifying to, this good news. He wants you to succeed. Now, as we heard last week, there are forces that are opposed against us, and we need to take them seriously. But God's grace is available to all who turn to Christ. In the life, death, and resurrection of his dear son, God has made a way for you to know him, to be reconciled to him. Not only that, God has made it clear that his whole creation will be restored because of this gospel of God's grace, Matthew 19, 28. This good news will transform your life if you will open your heart to receive it. This was Paul's calling to testify to this good news of God's grace. He describes it in verse 25 as preaching the kingdom. Just as Jesus bodily declared that the kingdom of God has come near, so Paul preached that in Christ God's rule, God's reign has come near. He preached that the presence of God, the power of God was available in the person of the Holy Spirit, now living in you and I, now living in anyone who has yielded in repentance and faith to Christ Jesus. Paul preaches the kingdom amongst the people. And then he goes on to say that he preached the whole will of God. He preaches the whole will of God. What does that mean? Not just that in Christ your sins may be forgiven, but they are. Not just that in Christ you may overcome evil and temptation, but you will. Not just that in Christ you might enter into eternal life and experience heaven, and you can. But the whole will of God that Paul preached, and perhaps the book of Romans is the clearest articulation of this, is that, that in the fullness of time, all of creation will be redeemed, renewed, and restored to a right relationship with God, our creator, through the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, you may not be called to preach as Paul was called to preach, but you are certainly called to testify to the good news of God's grace. Some lessons to draw from Paul's instructions here. Firstly, the lesson of perseverance. Paul was single-minded in fixing his eyes and completing the task that God had given to him. I wonder what it is that you might be putting off today. What is the task that God has given to you that you might be putting off today? What is the race that God has called you to run? What ministry are you failing to engage in, regardless of the setbacks that you have had? The first lesson from this chapter is, is the call to persevere. Some of you will be familiar with Abraham Lincoln, the renowned United States of America president who was assassinated during his second term and he's arguably described as one of the great USA presidents but you may not be familiar with the setback after setback after setback before he got to become the president of America. Born in 1809 at the age of nine his mother died and then he as a young man in 1831 he started his first business It went bankrupt after a year. Tried to get elected to the state legislator. In 1832, he failed. He tried again in 1833, he failed. So he went back to business. Again, that business failed in bankruptcy. At the age of 24, he was engaged to a fiance, she died. And that set him into an incredible depression that sent him to his bed for six months. He was in a deep, deep depression for six months. After that six months, he rose from his bed he said i'm going to apply again and i want to get elected into the legislature into congress he was defeated he tried again in 48 he was defeated he tried running for the senate in 55 he lost the next year he ran for vice president he lost until 1860 he tried one more time and he was elected to president and as i say his tenure was one of the greats until he was assassinated in his second term the Apostle Paul knew all about setbacks but significantly he knew about perseverance and that's what he's encouraging the elders here to persevere and that's what he would say to us today the obstacles that come our way can be overcome in Christ I can overcome all of those obstacles in Christ who strengthens me the call to persevere firstly Secondly, from this text, I see an equation of hard work plus God's grace equals faithful and fruitful ministry. In verse 35 of this chapter, Paul said the following words. Now I commit you to God's and to the word of his grace, verse 32, and in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, verse 35. So here we see God's grace and the hard work of the apostle put together, equating to faithful and fruitful ministry. And these two elements of God's grace and hard work are antidotes for those who are prone to sloth and for those who are prone to striving. For those who are prone to laziness, to cutting corners and to not doing the work that you've been called to do, Paul urges us and encourages us to work hard for the sake of the gospel. But for those of us who are prone to striving, for those of us who are prone to trying to prove something to somebody, God's grace reminds us that it is all about what God has done in Christ Jesus. Grace plus hard work equal faithful and fruitful ministry. So we see these elements in this chapter of perseverance, of hard work, and of God's grace. But let me finish with a sobering conclusion about the Ephesians church. The Ephesian elders heard these encouragements, they heard these warnings, and they took them back to their church. And they were diligent. They were people who persevered. They were people who worked hard. And we know that to be true because Jesus himself affirms the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation in chapter 2. He says the following words To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words to him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands I know your deeds your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. That's a sobering reminder of the church at Ephesus They were people who persevered. They were people who were hard at work. In fact, they were even careful with their doctrine and they weeded out the false teachers. But Jesus had this one thing against them. He said, you have forsaken your first love. And tragically, the church of Ephesus withered and died because they had lost the one thing that every church needs if it's to flourish and to multiply, and that is the first love of the Lord Jesus. And so my question to you this morning, as you're sitting here listening to this word, are you persevering? Good, keep going, God would say. Are you working hard? Good, keep going, God would say. But most importantly, he would say to us this morning, what is the state of your heart? What is the state of your first love? Does the candle burn brightly of your first love for the Lord Jesus? Maybe some of you here this morning, you've been working hard for many, many years. Maybe some of you have been persevering for many years, but there's something in your heart that has gone cold. That flame that burns so brightly, that first love is flickering and in danger of going out. It's my prayer this morning that God will reignite that flame. You know, Paul makes the the connection explicitly in Romans 5 between persevering and God's love. He talks about persevering, leading to hope. And that hope doesn't disappoint or bring us to shame, Paul says. He says, because God has poured his love into our hearts. God has poured his love into our hearts through that hope. So in a moment, I'm going to pray for you that that first love, that flame that will be rekindled by God. And you know what the oxygen is? The oxygen that allows the flame of your first love to burn it's this grace that Paul is talking about in this chapter. It's the unreserved favor of God. That's what allows your first love to burn. Let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer. And if what I've been talking about is echoing in your heart, if there's a sense in your heart right now that your, your flame, your first love for God has dwindled or in danger of going out, In a moment of silence, right now, I'm just going to invite God's spirit to pour his love into your heart through the grace of God. Let's just allow that to happen now in a moment of silence. the unreserved favor of God. Just breathe in the unreserved favor of God, the grace of God that's revealed to you in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you and praise you for this grace, this grace that Paul so eloquently testifies to, that is embodied in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that this good news of your unreserved favor would be poured into our hearts afresh, that we would know the hope and the joy and the wonder of our first love being rekindled. Would you do that for your church now? Would you rekindle our first love, that we might know the depth of joy afresh of our salvation? And Lord, as you do that, as you rekindle our love for you, as you reignite our love for you, would you be enabling us to be the witnesses, just as Paul was, to witness to others to this amazing love. So pour out your spirit into your church afresh. Rekindle that love in our hearts that you might be glorified in Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen.